And seeing as it's only really seven short verses that we're looking at, we could, um, we could read them through again before we begin. Luke 20, 45. Remember, Jesus has been in the temple for uh, uh, quite a few of these little um, vignettes that Luke has given us about Jesus' interactions with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And while all the people were listening, that is to Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk round in flowing robes. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces. They love to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a sure make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, around the world, there are a number of preachers, you could call them, uh, teachers of the Bible, who make an extortionate amount of money by persuading their audiences, their listeners, to give them their money, their cash. And when I talk about extortionate amounts of money, I don't just mean that these preachers have nice houses on nice side of town with, with a nice car on the driveway. I mean A-list celebrity types of money. Tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars that they've drawn out of the people who are eager to listen to them. Often vulnerable people. And these same teachers, sometimes called televangelists, sometimes called prosperity preachers, they come under all sorts of different names and banners. They come under criticism. People challenge them and say, how is it right that you can take all this money for yourself and leave your followers even in debt at times? Tens of thousands of dollars of debt in order that they might give to you and all your wealth. And these preachers, they respond by saying, look, all this wealth that I enjoy, all these cars, all these homes, all these private jets, these are God's blessings to me. Surely God loves his people, they argue. And if God loves his people, he's going to give them good gifts, they argue. And they say, if God has given me all these things, God must be pleased with what I am doing. So who are you to criticise? Now at first glance, the argument seems watertight. It's unfortunate because it's an abhorrent argument. It is so far from the truth of what God's word teaches. It is so far from the way God actually deals with his people and the way God actually shows love to those who serve him. It's unfortunate that their argument seems to hold weight with a lot of people. But it's not surprising. Because this argument isn't only pushed by those televangelists and prosperity preachers. You hear this kind of argument in all sorts of ways of life. You might hear it from the Christian businessman, for example, who justifies his neglect of his family 
and a single-minded pursuit of wealth and career and prosperity by saying, well, look, God has blessed me with success in my business. Therefore, God must be pleased with the way that I'm acting. Or you might hear it, for example, in the way that two young Christian lovers defend their adulterous or perhaps just unwise relationship by saying, this feels so good. It feels like a gift and a blessing from God. How can it possibly be wrong? It's so much better than what we had previous. Or you might even hear it by people who've been attending church for decades of their life and their assurance of salvation, their position before God, they trust that because other people in the church recognize them, because other people in the church honor them, therefore God must also honor them and be pleased with them. You don't have to look far to find people from all walks of life who claim that their external privileges, their outward demonstration of wealth or success or prosperity are a sign to them that God is blessing them and is pleased with them. And Jesus uses exactly these types of people to give a warning to his disciples. Luke chapter 20, verse 46, Jesus says to his disciples, Beware of these teachers of the law. Gather round, he says. Look at these guys here. Watch out for them. Beware of them. Steer clear of them. Why? Because just look at how they act. They like to walk round in flowing robes. It's like some kind of uniform that they wear for themselves. So that everybody in the streets and in the marketplaces knows instantly who these guys are. These are a cut above the rest. Their flowing robes are an instant sign that these guys are not into doing manual labour. There's no way they can be carpenters or woodworkers or farmers or, or shepherds or whatever else with these long flowing robes. And in order to keep them pristine and neat and clean, they've got to do all sorts of cleaning and washing and caring for them. Quite a, quite a costly and expensive process. Just by their clothes, these guys are showing everybody else, we're above you, we're superior. These guys love to be greeted in the marketplace. They give themselves special names and important titles, and they compel other people to use certain language when they address them. A reminder to themselves and to the people in their society that they deserve the respect and the honour They've got influence. They've got reach in this society in which they live. They love to have the most important seats at the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. Of course, they don't want to separate themselves from the lower classes. They don't want to be totally removed from them. They need them because that's where they get their honour from, their respect from. And so they're there at the weddings, at the feasts, at the parties, at the banquets but they're there in the most important seats. They're there in the places of honour. They're looking for outward displays of success and superiority that serve to confirm for themselves and as a sign to other people that they are more loved by God, that they are more blessed by God than the other people around them, that they are somehow more important to the mission of God than others. Jesus says, don't fall for their charade. Don't believe it. It's an empty show. Listen to their prayers. They are spoken more to other people than they are to God. 
And for all their talk about care and compassion, it's these people who do more to bring damage and hurt to the most vulnerable in society. The totality of their lives, their religious activity, is built around demonstrating to us that I am a somebody. I am significant. I ought to be respected and revered and looked up to. That's what they want to show by the way they act and the way they live. It's a damning assessment by Jesus. And as we read Jesus' assessment of these people, how can you help but feel Jesus' words cut so close to home? Because who hasn't recognised that their own actions, their own deeds, the way you serve in church, the way you relate to other people, at times is also driven, or perhaps not driven but tainted, by this same desire to display to other people your importance and superiority. You're consistent in attending the meetings here at church. But is that always purely because you want to honour God and come to worship Him? Or sometimes is it because you have a reputation to keep up? People would be disappointed in you if you weren't there. You're good at teaching the Bible to other people and ministering ministering to your family and to your Christian friends. But is that always just to serve those people you're speaking to? Or sometimes is it in order to demonstrate to other people how knowledgeable, how able you are? You have the Christian memorabilia in your home, the the pictures on the wall. You you have the music on on your CD stand. You have the hoodie from the Christian camp you've been to. But do you use and wear and and watch those things in order to remind yourself? Or sometimes do you use them as a sign to other people that, hey, I'm part of this club too. And you know, it's not just our religious activities. Even our so-called non-religious activities can fall into this kind of uh, trap. Every time a person seeks to be the strongest athlete or the most able student, the top of their class, uh, the the person with the most Facebook friends or, or followers? Isn't there a tendency in those things that we do them just to, to show others how important and significant we are? All for the purpose of confirming to ourselves and others, I am worth something, I am important, I am significant, and therefore God must love me so. Jesus says, God is not impressed by those things. God is not impressed by your fancy robes, your special names, your respect in society. God is not impressed by your knowledge of the Bible, the size of your bookshelves, the number of friends you have, either real or online. He's not impressed by the amount of times you've preached or taught, your athletic achievements, your academic achievements, or anything else. None of it impresses God. In fact, such people will be punished most severely. It's damning, isn't it? To realise just how easily pride infects everything we do. But I want to encourage you. Because Jesus' words here 
are not spoken to condemn his disciples. Jesus isn't saying, look at the pride in your lives, you need to root it out. Jesus brings up this topic as a warning. He says, verse 46, beware of those. Beware of those people, the teachers of the law. There are, yeah, yes, pride infects each and every one of us. But there are some who make this pride the pattern of their lives. There are some who take pride in their pride, as it were. And Jesus is giving us, his disciples, a warning. He's saying, watch out, beware. And I think there's a double effect to this warning that he's given us. The first part of the effect is he's saying, look at the fallacy of their way of life. Look how false their philosophy is. Do not buy it. Their glory is empty. They seem impressive, but they are weak. They argue that they are loved and blessed by God, whereas actually they're heading towards condemnation. Do not buy the message that they sell. That the person with the most outward shows of privilege are the people who are most loved by God. It is empty, it is false, it is a lie. The prophets of a proud heart are never proof of God's blessing. That's the first effect of Jesus' warning. Watch out for their lie. But secondly, I think Jesus is warning his disciples, watch out that you are not influenced by them. This way of life is deceptive and it is seductive. It is highly appealing. We've already thought about how pride infects so easily almost every action that we do. In fact, some people claim that pride is is the, the sin behind any sin that we commit. Pride is what sin is, some might argue. Jesus says, it's so easy for us to get caught up in it. Don't let yourself follow those deceivers. Who are you modelling your life on? Who are you seeking to emulate? Who are you wanting to be like? What would success look like in your life? Is it when you've matched the pattern of these proud people who have all the outward shows, who want the impressive display of wealth and ability and success? Is that what you're aiming for? Jesus says, watch out. Don't make them the model for your life. Instead, seek people who are humble. Seek people who are humble, not proud, on which to model your life. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no place for the proud. How could there be? How could there be place in Jesus' kingdom for such pride? When you think of who Jesus himself was, Jesus our leader, Jesus our example, our saviour, he didn't come seeming rich and impressive, though he had the resources of the whole universe at his disposal. He came in weakness. He came into poverty. Jesus didn't come keeping people at arm's length, holding them back, requiring special greetings, even though he was their creator and he was the one who sustained their very existence at that moment. He didn't hold them off. He welcomed them. He brought them close. Jesus didn't insist on receiving honour from the people he met. In fact, he gave honour to the people who brought him into disrepute. People like Zacchaeus. 
People like the bleeding woman. People like the leper who he went and approached and loved and cared for. He gave honour to the ones who brought him dishonour. And when it came for Jesus to be rejected, how did Jesus respond? Well, he wasn't indignant. He didn't stand back in the corner and, and, fight and defend himself. He willingly walked a path of suffering. He wasn't a man of fame and celebrity. He was a man of sorrows. He wasn't a man of pride. He was a man of humility. And if Jesus rejected the self-seeking pride of these teachers of the law that he points out, oughtn't we also, as his followers, watch out for that pride? Not follow their pattern, but follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Beware of those teachers of the law. Beware of the effect of pride. Now, having given his disciples an example of how not to behave, Jesus then turns to show them a positive example of real humility. We're into chapter 21 now, those first four verses. And as Jesus is sitting in the temple, he looks up and he observes what's going on. And he notices how the rich people... And this group of rich, perhaps it might include some of those teachers of the law, but it's not necessarily restricted to them. He notices the rich come in and make their offerings in the temple. Now, the system was not dissimilar to what you might see in a church today. Uh, the, the temple, the, the heart of the Jewish religion, was run by using the offerings that people would give as they came to make sacrifices uh, in the temple. And some of those offerings were compulsory, and some of them were free will offerings. People could just donate as they wished to. And the, 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 the boxes for these offerings were sort of set around the courtyard of the temple. There was some claim that they were big uh, sort of trumpet-shaped metal balls. And so as people would come into the temple, they would drop their coins into these big trumpets and all the coins would collect in the bottom. And Jesus watches the rich come and pour in their bags of coins, clattering down the metal trumpets now there's no comment here about the rich jesus isn't condemning the rich he's not saying that they're arrogant he's not um, he, he doesn't make a comment about the rich but over against those large amounts of money clattering into those trumpets who do you think gave the most isn't that a good question who's giving the most to this temple who's being the most generous who's offering the most to god well, the answer would have, I'm sure, surprised Jesus' disciples. You see, one poor widow comes in. And she walks up to one of these offering boxes and she drops in two of the smallest coins they had available to them. Two little copper coins. Literally worth pennies. If you saw a person doing it today, you might consider them dropping in 20p. Now, that's kind of cute when a child does it. They share their pocket money, let's say. But when a grown woman comes in and makes this her serious offering for the week or the month, here's 20p. What do you think of her? How much is she really giving? Jesus commends this poor widow. He says she has given the most out of all of these people. She has given the most. What on earth does Jesus mean? He certainly can't mean he's counted the amount and this is more. These pennies are literally almost worthless. They're apparently one one hundredth of a day's wage. 
almost useless. They will barely be missed in the treasury. And I don't think what Jesus means is, I don't think he means she has given a greater percentage of her income. You know, if two people give a hundred pounds, but the first person only has a monthly salary of a thousand pounds, and the second person has a monthly salary of three thousand pounds, well, you might claim that the first person has given more, because they've given a greater proportion of their salary. They've given a greater percentage. But I don't think Jesus is making an argument here about the percentages that we give. That we should be worked up about what proportion of my income am I offering to God. It's easy for someone who's quite rich to give a high proportion of their income. And it can sometimes be quite difficult for someone who's quite poor even to give a very small proportion of their income. I don't think Jesus is making an argument about proportion. In fact, from Jesus' response, this widow didn't give a proportion of what she had. This widow, verse 4, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Not a proportion, not a part, not a small sum. She gave all she had to live on. Quite literally, Jesus said she gave her bios, her livelihood. She gave her life even. All she had to live on. Why would she do that? Why would she relinquish her very last coins in a voluntary offering box? If you can grasp why this woman has done this deed, you can grasp something of what real generosity is. I don't think this woman did it because there was any benefit to her. She's not done it to claim uh, to, to, to get the respect from other people in the temple. She's not done it so that people will uh, respect the amount of money that she's given and she would have an influence in the way the temple is run or what's going on. She's not done it for any physical benefit to herself. She's also not done it, I don't think, to make herself feel useful. You know, sometimes people give money because they want to feel useful. They want to they want to feel like they've made a contribution. Perhaps you think, you know, it's hard to spread the gospel. It's hard to speak to my friends about who Jesus is. But maybe if I make a contribution to a mission society, then that replaces my obligation. I feel useful by the money that I give. But I don't think that can be what's driving this money, uh, this woman. Because how useful, really, is her gift in earthly terms? How useful is she being offering two of the smallest copper coins available to her? It's, in in earthly terms, useless. And I don't think she's made this offering out of coercion. This is a free will offering. She's not been forced to do it. And even if she was forced to do it, she could have given one coin, couldn't she? But she gives two. So why did she do it? The only explanation I think you can piece together is that her sacrificial offering is given out of a desire to honour God. She wants to honour God with the things that he has blessed her with. It's a response of faith. It's not done to make herself look great. It's not done out of pride. It's not done with great fanfare. And she doesn't stop at some lower threshold. Once she's ticked the box, that's enough. I've done my bit. I'll stop now. 
she gives generously, sacrificially. Do you see the utter contrast that Jesus brings up here between those teachers of the law who did everything to get everybody they could to look at them and see how great and fantastic and honourable they were. And then in comes this poor widow, sheepishly, quietly, with nothing much really to offer. But she just obeys God, quietly, as best she is able. She gives all she has. She gives even her whole life, you might say, for the sake of others. We'd be daft if we skipped over these verses without picking up some lessons for ourselves about what generosity really is. If you are patting yourself on the back for your generosity this month, if you are patting yourself on the back for achieving certain percentage numbers in your giving, if you consider yourself an example to other people that they should follow you and your patterns of giving, then really the attitude of your heart is more like the teacher of the law than like this widow. Perhaps it's not real generosity at all, no matter how much you're giving. And if you're setting limits on what you're willing to give, look, I've set up my direct debit for this month, and so these other needs, well, they will just have to wait. I've given my bit, I've played my part. Then really, that's not generosity at all either. How can the love of God be in a person who does not use their material possessions to help their brother or sister in need. This widow shows us that no amount is too small when we give. What good is a couple of pounds a month? In earthly terms, it's you're right, it's not much at all. But in terms of storing up treasure in heaven, it can be priceless. This widow shows that there are none who are too poor to be generous. Perhaps you've got no stable income. Perhaps you're a student living off borrowed money. Perhaps you're not yet old enough to have a salary or a regular source of money that you can share with other people. But it doesn't mean you can't share, you can't give, you can't be generous. But in your generosity... If you're in one of those situations, don't make the gifts of other people your standard of what to aim for. God has given you a certain amount that that you have the privilege to deal with. The question is, will you use it, like the teacher of the law did, to hoard for yourself status and wealth and honour? Or will the attitude of your heart be more like the widow who gives it sacrificially? and yet in unimpressive ways. This is a high bar, isn't it, to follow? This is a high standard. This is a difficult thing to achieve, and there is a challenge here for each and every one of us. But what is the motivation? Why should a person decide to strive for this high bar that is set for us in Scripture? Why should we try and live this humble, generous life that Jesus portrays to us. Now, if you're new here, it might, you might feel that this sort of message sounds fantastically virtuous. You might feel that it's a refreshing change to the materialism that is pumped into our houses for, from all sorts of different avenues around us in the 21st century. And you might think that, okay, Christianity, 
It's this generosity, is it? This is what I've got to do to be right with God. This is what I've got to do to be one of his people. I would say no, not quite. You see, the example of this widow is not an example by which we make ourselves pleasing to God. The example of this widow is not really an example for us. Really, she is an example of Jesus Christ. She is a picture of the way Jesus Christ works. You see, wasn't he also the one who left the riches of heaven to become poor? He gave up what he had to serve others. And didn't he, even when he came as a man, give all that he had, yes, even his life, his bios, his livelihood, his living, for the sake of others? Yes, he did. When he died on the cross, he gave up his life to pay your debt. As he gave his life, wasn't he considered unimpressive, rejected, worthless? And wasn't his offering considered useless even by his own followers? When Christians pick up this model of generosity and humility that we have here in this passage, we're not necessarily following the example of this unnamed widow. What we're doing if we try and live by this type of generosity is we're trying to live according to the pattern that Jesus himself has set for us. We're trying to follow in his steps, not the steps of this widow. Now the first question you need to ask yourself then is, am I really one of Jesus' followers? Am I one of his disciples? Have I shunned pride? Have I turned from sin? Am I trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for forgiveness? And if you are, then you're welcomed into his kingdom. You're welcomed in as one of his people. And so if you are one of his people, if you are one of his followers, the lesson from today's text is, am I following him? Really? Am I walking in his footsteps? Am I reflecting the pattern of his life in my life? Am I turning from pride and living in humble, generous, self-giving, sacrificial ways? Not in order to make myself pleasing to him. Not in order to win his favour. But as a reflection of the goodness and the kindness that he has first shown to us. How can you become more like Christ today?